to get started. Welcome to Providence Road. We are really glad that you're here this morning to worship with us. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, especially if you're a guest with us this morning and it's your first time here, welcome. And we're honored that you would spend a few hours on a Sunday morning with us. We're, we, are, uh, we are really humbled by that. Um, I'll start by saying I got a little bit of a cough, and so I, I'm hoping that's not too annoying. I'll try to cover the mic when I do that, but I'm kind of battling a lingering cough right now. Um, we're continuing on um, in the book of Philippians, walking through this. We find ourselves in chapter 2. I'm going to read um, a, a large chunk of Scripture this morning. It's about 25 verses. So I want to remind you that this is God's Word, and the Spirit is active and moving in God's Word, even when we just read it, right? Like, we don't have to study it. We can actually just read it, and the Spirit can do some things. And so some public reading of Scripture audibly with, with a bunch of people, that was common in the Scriptures, okay? So um, as we read um, this, this here in a second, follow along, think about it, pay attention to the words, um, and then we'll pray and, and get into it. So we're going to start in uh, chapter 2. We'll start with verse 5. Verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am, pr- I be- I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by, by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you uh, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we 
dig into this passage a bit today. I pray that your spirit would move and would be active and that it would soften our minds, help us understand, change our hearts, change our desires, change our affections, and that as a result of those two things, it would change the way we live. That even in this next 45 minutes or so, we would be changed. We would walk out of here as changed people. So do that. We believe you can do that. So I pray you would help us humble ourselves and put ourselves under the authority of your word and trust that these words we're reading are the words of life. You can bring life and healing, change minds, change hearts. So do that this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So like I said, we're continuing on in chapter 2. Last week, if you weren't here with us, I said that this week would be a continuation from last week. The continuation from last week. So if you want more backstory, more context to what I'm saying today, I encourage you to go back to the podcast, listen to last week, and it sets up today a little bit better. But for the sake of time, I got to kind of jump into this this morning. And what we're going to cover um, this morning is, is dense. It's thick, like in content, but it's, it's very straightforward, in my opinion. It's very straightforward. And I believe it's one of the greatest passages, maybe the greatest passage in all of the Bible when it comes to telling us who Jesus is and what he has done. There are a lot of things packed into these first um, six or seven verses we're going to look at. And you may have heard before at some point that the most important question that we can ask as human beings is, who is God? Meaning, who is God to you or what do you think about God? But I would say a second question that is connected to that one that is equally important is, who is Jesus to you? What do you think about Jesus? What comes to mind when you think of Jesus's name? And I can't tell how important it is for us to think about that question, wrestle with it, process it in our minds, process it out loud. Because if we, if what we read today is true, and I believe it is. There's a lot of historical and journal, journalistic facts that I think would happen that we're going to read today. What happened is true. Then it demands a response. We must respond to what we're going to see today in the word. If it is true, and I believe it is true. But I know by just me saying that's not going to cause those of you who don't believe in Jesus to believe. But here's what I want for you today. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, <clears throat> I would hope that what we're going to talk about today at least makes Jesus more believable. Like you may walk out of here with maybe a, a more open-mindedness about maybe Jesus is who he said he was, and he did what the Bible says he did. That's my prayer for you. If you're a Christian in here, my prayer for you today is you would, you would uh, evaluate and think about the things in your life, those spaces, those spots in your life that uh, maybe he's not the Lord of your life in. Maybe you, you, lack, you lack some belief in certain areas. You lack some trust. You lack some faith that he's going to show up in this area or that he's good enough for you in this area. And my prayer as we look at this passage about Jesus, that you will believe at a deeper level in Jesus as Lord of your life. The, to pick up in the, in the text, in verse 4, the, really the previous four verses, Paul has been exhorting this church at Philippi to not be selfish. Don't be conceited. Be humble. He's, he's really work, helping them see how they should treat one another in the context of the church. Verse 4 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
And in verse 5, he says, um, have this mind among yourselves. So act like this. Have this attitude, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, what I'm about to tell you, the way Jesus acted and obeyed, have the same attitude. Be like Jesus here. Put, your own, put uh, others' needs above your own. Be connected to the church body. Be relationally invested. Those are some of the things we talked about last week, kind of how we can be humble. It's not just not fighting with one another, but it's actually willing to step in and be relationally connected in a body of believers. That's the way we can humble ourselves. Now, verses 6 through 11, which we're about to get into here, like I said last week, this verse in the original language was, was written as a poem. And in the early gatherings of the church, um, this was used as a hymn. So this, this passage, 6 through 11, was meant to be sung. And when you read it in the, uh, in the, in the Greek, the, old, the, the original language, it does have a rhythm and a cadence to something you could sing. But when that comes over into English, we lose that. Like we can't, as we read it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense as a song necessarily. But you'll notice some of your physical Bibles actually break it up in such a way that they're trying to get it. Hey, this is a poem, the way it's written, even um, in your own Bible. Um, but it's, it's meant to be sung. It's worshipful. So uh, let's dig in here. Let's look at verses 6, 7, and 8 first. Who? This is Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what's this passage saying? First, it's saying that Jesus is a hundred percent God. He is fully God. And he's pre-existent, which means he existed before anything else was created. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existed relationally in the Trinity together before Genesis 1, before the foundations of the world. None of those three was created. They have just always been and always existed. Much of the early controversies in the other church or the church revolved around this. A lot of people want to make Jesus a created being. And you pull on that thread and a lot of things start to unravel with our faith. One of the foundations of our faith is to believe that Jesus existed both before the foundation of the world and he was fully God. And it says here, he, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He didn't, he, he, he considered it, he considered his, his Godness, the things, things that make him God, and he chose not to grasp it. He didn't cling to it. He didn't reach out for it, but he emptied himself. Those things that made him God, he emptied himself of those things. And to become Jesus of Nazareth, the, the, the Jesus we see in the Gospels, he had to do this. This is what incarnation means. We talked about this last week. But incarnation, carne there in the original is, is, is meat. So it's literally in the meat, in the flesh, Jesus came. Took on human form. This is what the incarnation means. So the question here, this is an important question. Did Jesus cease to be God when he came to earth? The question is no. The Bible is clear on that. He was fully God and fully man. That's mind-blowing, hard to understand, but he's a hundred percent both. And that's mysterious. And that's okay. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay? He's not 50-50. That's kind of what my mind goes. So he's kind of 50-50. No, he's not 50-50. He's 100-100. Okay? 
He's not a man with like a spark of the divine, like the, the, the spirit shows up every once in a while. No. And he's not God with a man suit, like a really good Halloween costume. That's, he's not that either, okay? He is fully God and fully man. He doesn't have a shell on. And Paul gets at this. He talks about, he uses this word form, very form of God in verse 7. It's kind of nature. That's essence. And then in verse, verse 6, he says that in verse 7, he says taking the form of man. That, that word form there is the same word. It's the same word. He's saying he's fully God and he's fully man. And he stayed God, but he relinquished his rights to the things that made him God when he came to earth. He laid aside those things. One theologian says it like he, he veiled, you know what a veil is, he put a veil over the characteristics that made him God. He didn't void his deity or what made him God. He veiled it. He covered it for a period of time. Another way to think of this emptying or pouring out is to think of a container, like a pitcher of something, and you pour it out. The thing that actually poured it doesn't lose its form. It doesn't lose its shape, but now it's empty. So the thing didn't change, but what was inside of it was empty. This is crazy that our Savior, King Jesus, came to this broken and jacked up world, laid aside the things that made him God, said, I'm going to leave that here. I'm going down to earth. And I'm going to live as a man. I'm going to experience hunger and pain and suffering. And he would, as we know, eventually would take that to the farthest degree and die on the cross. Dying for people who didn't love him, who hated him, who killed him, who were rebellious, enemies of him, didn't want anything to do with him. And he didn't, he didn't only just die, the scripture says, he he died by crucifixion, which was reserved for the worst of the worst. They wouldn't even uh, uh, let a Roman citizen be crucified unless they were a traitor. They committed treason. So the cru- 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 death by crucifixion was reserved for an out- someone outside the Roman Empire who was a horrible criminal. That's how Jesus died. For you and I. For sinners. And how... Often we rebel, fight against that. This was a shameful, humiliating death that Jesus had to suffer through. What's crazy is who, like, who makes this stuff up? Right? Like, like who makes this stuff up? Like, this is, this is crazy that this happened. Like, if I, if a lot of the, the things that get lobbed at Christianity say this is, this is all fairy tales and make-believe. Like, why would you take your God, your Savior... And make him be humiliated in this way. Like if you were creating a religion that you wanted to get traction and people to worship, you create a, a man who became God on earth and ruled and reigned. I mean, that was how this thing would work. But that's why this is not made up. Because you wouldn't make this up. The way Jesus died it was a God who became man, but didn't lose what made him actually God. He didn't lose that. Verse 9, what, what does God do in response to what Jesus did? Therefore, that's an important word we've seen in, in Paul's writings. That means something's coming connected to what's before. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him at the name that is above every name. God didn't chastise him. God didn't view Jesus as any less for what he'd done. 
God exalts him. God honors him. God esteems him. God puts him on the throne where he is ruling and reigning right now as we speak. This is how God responded to what Jesus did. This idea of humbling yourself, Jesus says something similar to the, to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said, verse 12, he says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is how honor and exaltation work in the kingdom of God. Those who try to make a name for themselves, those who try to make themselves great and, and self-sufficient and don't think they need God and could do this life on their own, there is one day, the scripture says, where those people will be humbled. But those who humble themselves, those who realize they need something outside of themselves to save them, like Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, those who become meek, they shall inherit the kingdom of God. And they shall be exalted one day. It's flipped around according to the most, most ways our culture works with this whole honor deal. It redefined it in the Roman culture and it should redefine it in our culture, especially as followers of Jesus. Honor isn't getting the most people to like you. It isn't using your position and authority and benefits uh, to, to build you up for your own benefit, your personal gain. Honor, when you receive honor and you have that influence, you give it away for the benefit of others, like Jesus did. You take whatever power or authority or influence you have and lay it down on behalf of others. And this is what Paul told us in verses three through four we looked at last week. Humble yourselves. Your own interests, like, make, consider others. Don't be conceited. Don't be arrogant. Don't have selfish ambition. Why? Why, why is this happening in verse nine? Well, look at verse 10. So that... So verse 9 happened, God puts him on the throne so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of human history is heading to this moment. This moment right here in verses 10 and 11. It's all heading here. When Jesus comes back at God's appointed time to judge and to execute justice on the earth. He will set up the new heavens and the new earth where those who call him Lord and King will dwell with him in joyful union for all eternity. This moment could happen later today. This moment could happen years from now. We really don't know. But the scripture says we should be ready because it could come anytime. Now, notice he says every tongue confess, every knee bow. Okay, well, what's this talking about? Like, what does this mean? Does this mean that everyone is saved? Does this mean that all human beings are saved? Is that what, is that what this is, is getting at here? No. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord. But here's how that'll happen. It means at this time when this takes place, those who love him on earth, those who know him, those who have faith and belief in him, will see him as he is one day. They'll see him without any barriers, without any sin. They'll see Jesus as he is, and we won't be able to do anything but fall down in joyful, uninhibited freedom of worship. And it will last a long time, and it will be beautiful and amazing and glorious. That's what that means for those who love him here on earth. Those who don't love him, they will bow. They will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
This will be a part of the judgment. This will be part of Jesus executing justice. And this group of people will spend eternity apart from Jesus, apart from God, apart from the beauty and wonder of him. And will spend eternity in places the Bible describes as a fiery furnace, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of no rest. And this place is otherwise known as hell. And like I said at the beginning, this passage demands a response. Like it just causes us to, like we, we have to respond here, right? Like, like you read this and this truth, it demands a response. We're going to wait. At the end, we're going to have a chance to respond to these things. But before we move on, um, actually, wait, before I, before I throw out the next slide, um, question. Do you worship this Jesus? Like, do we believe in this Jesus? I think our culture a lot of times likes Jesus, parts of him. But when we get in here and sing and praise him, is this the Jesus that we're praising? Is this the Jesus we're singing to? The Jesus the Bible describes? It's a legitimate question for us to ask and reflect on. Is it the Jesus that we want him to be, that it's kind of shaped into our own mold? Or is it the Jesus that we see here in this passage in Philippians? That's why it's important to, to think about who Jesus is while we sing. We don't just sing to, for the sake of sing. We actually think about the words and think about, oh, this is Jesus. This, this is the man that I'm seeing. This is the man that I'm worshiping here. It's important to, to know who Jesus is. That's why we're spending so much time on this passage. I want to throw up this, this quick uh, I showed this last week. I'm not going to go through it again. For those of you who are visual people, this really helped me. This is basically an image uh, of what this passage lays out. Top left, pre-existed glory before the foundation of he humbled himself, renounced his rights to be God, incarnated himself all the way down to the crucifixion, humbled himself, and then God exalts him. And you kind of have the upswing here. And then the adoration confession, that's what he deserves. That's what he's worth. He's worth our honor and our worship. And then um, to, the, to the far right, to the glory of God the Father. This is why all of this is happening, so that God in heaven may receive glory. And so that's the kind of the, the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus, as kind of theologians would say. And that's a, a picture of that. I can go ahead and pull that down. I just wanted to, if, 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 uh, come find me if you want, to, want, that, uh, want that for later to be able to, to memorize this passage a little bit more. Let's, let's continue on. Here's the deal. What he's about, what he said previously in verses 1 through 4, and what he's about to say, Paul knows that we have no hope of doing. We have no hope of doing what he's about to say unless we understand and get the verses we just looked at. Okay, So keep that in mind. These verses can't exist without those before. I think that's why Paul inserted that poem, that hymn, right before this. Because here's what he says in, in, in verse 12. Therefore... Again, there's that word again. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, let's take this in parts. Okay, therefore, we get that now. It's based off what's come before. So therefore, based off what you just heard, my beloved, this term of endearment that Paul uses, he's basically saying, those of you who are loved by God and loved by me, so he starts off with a very pastoral, fatherly tone here. Those who I love, those who I care for, 
Those who I want to see thrive and grow and, and understand and believe. Um, and he doesn't assume that. He doesn't assume that they know this. It's interesting that Paul even is being pastoral here in Father. He doesn't assume that they know he loves them. He goes back to it. Beloved. He says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Oftentimes in Paul's writing, before he's about to give a, a big, strong command, he affirms it. Notice he affirms, he goes, he goes, as you have always obeyed in my presence. Like you're doing good. Remember that. Like you've obeyed. Now do it more in my absence while I'm gone, while I'm here in prison. By the way, this is a great pattern for us as we communicate with each other. Like if you're about to say something that you know may be hard or like you're going to be critical or you're going to ask someone to do something, it's probably a pretty good idea to affirm what's good about them or the situation before you make that ask, okay? Um, that'll go better in your marriages if you do that, just FYI, from personal experience. Like, um, that's a good tip from Paul, kind of reading between the lines there. Next, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? First, we need to remember who this is written to, okay? It's first to be applied in the plural. He's writing to the whole church here, so it's first plural. But because we as individuals make up that plural, we also have to understand it as individuals. Um, as the individuals make up the church as well. Work out. This sounds exactly probably what, whenever you hear work out in your minds, that's what it means. Usually we think of exercise or fitness or, yeah, working out at the gym. Okay, that's what this, that's what this means. Okay, it means to produce, to bring about. It's an active work. Okay? And so don't, this, this idea of let go and let God, that, that's found nowhere in the scripture. Okay? And this verse kind of contradicts that. There's no let go and let God. I know the sentiment of that, but that, that can be dangerous because that, kind of, that can go passive really, really quick. This is an active word. Work out. Um, similar, a couple of other places in Paul's writings, Philippians 3.12, here's the same idea. Not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, so I'm not there yet, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Seems here, and some of us get a little bit nervous, get a little bit, you know, Paul, what are you saying here? Are you saying this is like salvation by works? Are you saying that our standing before God is dependent upon how we behave? Is that, is that what you're saying? No. Remember, this is a letter to Christians. He is writing to Christians who've been saved, who know they're saved, who they're secure, and there's nothing they can do that can pull them out of God's hands if they are saved. If they are true Christians, that's established. So he's writing this to Christians. Okay. Now, he's simply saying here that to grow in our faith, to look more like Jesus, it's going to require some effort on our part. You ask anybody who's progressed in their faith over many, many years, you ask them, does this require some effort on your behalf to look like Jesus? Yes, it does. Someone who's walked the walk for a long time will tell you it requires some effort. Listen to other, other letters of Paul again, talking about this kind of effort. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. This is Paul using an athletic metaphor. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's talking about his ministry here, though. About his ministry, he's saying, I, I discipline my body like an athlete so I can do what God's called me to do. 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called 
and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Okay? Main idea here is this isn't passive. Our faith is not a passive faith. Um, recently, I, uh, uh, a few of us built a, a big pergola in our backyard. And then by, by we, I meant they all built it. And mostly I stood and watched, I felt like. Um, and I am terrible with my hands. I'm awful. Like this thing we built, I could not have done this without mostly Todd Pelton and a few other guys. Um, and yeah, I'm not good at this at all. Like I, there's no way I could have done this. Uh, at one point they asked for um, some pliers and I went and found the tongs from the grill, okay? Like I said, I think they do the same thing, right? Like the same, no, like that's me. Like I can't do things with my hands. So looking at this and I've actually thought, how long would it take me to throw one of these things up by myself? They had a long time. And I think, well, what would it require? Some learning, some practice, some time, some work. Anybody who's good with their hands will tell you it's taken a lot of usually time and practice and failing and learning and growing over a long period of time. And that's the case for most things in our life that we grow up into. So why should it be different with our faith? So this whole idea of being afraid that this is, oh, this is salvation, we don't, we don't have to fear that. We don't have to fear that, in my opinion. Things that we want to grow up into, it takes practice and training. It does. Next word, salvation. Salvation, simple sin, salvation from God's wrath, um, it, it, salvation from sin, in some sense, salvation from ourselves, okay? And, and it's here we're talking past, present, future of, 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 of salvation. I think it's helpful. We've talked about that a lot here, but past, you've been saved. You believed in the gospel. The future, you look at um, future aspect of our salvation, Philippians 1, 6, says, I am sure of this, we talked about this several weeks ago, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So all this is headed there. But what about the present, the present aspect of our salvation? This is what Paul's getting at here. Right now, in this moment, there's work to do involving this big thing called your salvation that you already have based off of something that you've believed in the past and what Jesus has done, Okay. We're just growing up into our faith here. The big theological word for this is sanctification. Okay? Well, how do we do this? Paul says with fear and trembling. It just means with having a sense of awe, having a sense of reverence. This isn't fear like I'm cowering in the corner fear. This is I, I'm, I'm serving King Jesus, so there's a little bit of healthy fear there, but it's more of awe and wonder and think how awesome is it is that I was lost and I hated this person and he saved me and changed my heart and now I love him. How awesome is that? And I want to work out my salvation in response to how awesome this king is that I serve. But it does communicate some seriousness or he wouldn't have used fear and trembling. He would have used other words if he didn't want to communicate some, 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 uh, some heaviness, some intentionality, something very important. So he wants the Philippians to make this important. He wants this to be important to the Philippians. Is it important to you? Now, if we stopped here, this, there should be some discouragement. I, I keep sitting over and over. One step forward, two steps back. It's hard. Sometimes it's frustrating. I'm impatient. I want to grow up quicker than I am in certain areas. I've heard one illustration, it's like seeing someone grow our faith is like, you can't, you watch over, if you, if you see them and a year later you see them again, especially kids, they've grown. 
but if you see them every single day, you can't actually see them grow. Kind of like our faith. If day by day, it's frustrating, it's hard, but if we look back, we should see, oh, look, look back from the future into the past, we should, oh, okay, I see it. I see where I've grown a little bit here and there. Um, it's part of our faith. Okay, so a lot of this is just a more awareness of the holiness of God and the depth of our sin. Um, now, the next verse here, if you're weary, if you're fighting, and you're struggling, this next verse is for all of us, but especially for you. Listen to 13, and this is good news. For it is God, so based off of verse 12, for or because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay? It's kind of crazy. This is a tension here. Okay, so I'm working at it, but God's in me through the Spirit, helping me, guiding me, giving, giving me power. He's linking this to verse 12. Paul says that while we are working out our faith, God, through the Holy Spirit, is, is working in us to give us the ability to actually work out our faith. Okay? God working in us is what allows us to grow up into our salvation. God doesn't do it for us. That's an important distinction. But he is the one that gives us the power to be able to do it. It's like he says, I want you to participate with me as I help you get there. That's what God's saying. John Owen, old theologian, says this, God works in us and with us, but not for us or against us. Okay? God works in us and with us, but not for us and against us. Um, I'll use another, uh, an illustration here. Thought of this. And this was really helpful for me. So here's a lamp. Lamps are supposed to, supposed to work. Okay? Right now, I'm twisting the, the button on this lamp, and nothing's happening. So I want this light bulb to come on. It needs to be lit. So I'm going to take this off and... Shake it a little bit. It's not working. Take the bulb off. Hit it. Light, light. It's frustrating. It's not working. This is hard. It's tiring. That was a 90s joke for those of you who grew up in the 90s. There it is. Why is it lit? It's because it's connected to the power source. I could get frustrated and I could yell at this light and I can try to get this light to, to light without me even turning the button, but it doesn't work. The only way this is going to be light is for something else to make it light up. And this is the Holy Spirit in this illustration, okay? This was, really, this was helpful for me when I started thinking about well, what does this look like practically, okay? doing a lot of props today. I don't know what the deal is. Uh, I think Blake's going to come up at the end and do an interpretive dance for the final one, so wait for that. Um, so what, what should this do to us, okay? This should change the way we pray. If this is true, this should change the way we, we, we view Bible reading, right? Like getting in the Word now is not a thing we check off the list or something where we can accumulate some, some principles or some knowledge. If God is the one in us who's allowing us to grow, to fight sin, to be humble, to live on mission, to love each other in community, to do any of that stuff that we're called to do, it's the Holy Spirit in us doing it that allows us to work hard and put effort towards it. 
So if that's the case, I need to spend time with God. I need to learn to listen to the Spirit. I need to learn to allow me to be surrender, to surrender my life to the Spirit and not work in my, my own effort. And we hear that a lot. Not my effort, but Holy Spirit's effort. But there is some effort there. There's some effort for us, but the Holy Spirit is behind us giving us the ability to do that. God talks about this in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, knows why it's the fruit of the Spirit? Like all these things that we're supposed to do, but then he says, it only comes by the Spirit. So you can't do these things like love, joy, peace, patience. No, no. It all comes from the Spirit working inside of us. And in, in verse 13, I don't want to miss it. He says, why does he do this? He does it for his good pleasure, God's good pleasure. And we know from reading Scripture that all of this is for his glory. And God, is, God takes great pleasure when he is glorified. And how are we to glorify God? When we actually find contentment, value, joy, freedom, peace in him. When we have pleasure in God, we're going to glorify him. We're going to talk about him. We're going to make his name great. So all of this, everything we've just read is done for the glory of God. But also for our pleasure. Because that's how he's going to get most glory. God doesn't get glory from a bunch of robots who are unhappy trying to serve him. No one looks at that and says, oh, I, I really want that. No, he, we, he, he's more, most glorified when, we're, when, we're, when we find most satisfaction in him and we love him more. He wants us to experience joy and peace and freedom in him. This is why he's given us the Holy Spirit. It makes us look more like Jesus so we can glorify him and find more joy in him. And I don't want to bring us back here kind of to wrap us up to why Paul even is going into this. This is relational. This whole context is how we treat other people. It's, it's ethics, okay? It's not just a theology thing Paul's trying to do. He's, he dropped that in there, all of this, to help us love one another better. And we have no hope without the Holy Spirit to do this. Listen to verses 14 through 18. This is all we'll make it through today. 14 through 18, listen to this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. And he's asking us to hear to do some things here. Children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, why are we doing this? Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Even as I, Paul, am about to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He returns to how we live here. He returns to ethics. He returns to don't grumble, don't complain, put others before yourself, love one another, lay down your life for one another. And while you're doing this, the world's going to see it. You'll shine like lights in a dark world that for the most part, it's all about me, and it's all about number one. We want the world to know the God that we serve. And then the, the, the rest of the chapter, we're not going to read it, we read it at the beginning, but he really, he puts out two examples of people in the church who actually live this out. He holds Timothy um, and Epaphroditus up there, and he says, these, these are my guys. W look at them. He goes into their resume, how awesome they are. Is when you see them, encourage them, love them, spend time with them. These guys are great. Why are they great? Because they're, they're living out what Paul is asking the rest of the church to do. This is why he highlights them here in the middle of the letter. He usually does this at the end of the letter, talk about people and, and those kinds of things, but he does this in the middle of the letter because he's using them as an example to the, to the Philippian body. Okay, in closing, here, here, simple application. Let's all 
do whatever it takes to know, love, memorize, dwell on Philippians 2, 6 through 11. It's like, we got to start there. Like we, that ha- like, we need to memorize that. We need to know that. That needs to be like on repeat in our minds all day, that passage. And then once it's there, like once that starts, then we can listen to Paul and, and we can be the kinds of people live the kind of way, work out our salvation in such a way where the world around us will encourage each other, but the world around us who doesn't know Jesus can look in on us and say, oh, I want to know more about that God because these people are different. And the reason why we're different is because we serve and we worship a different God. Let's pray. Father, I'm once again just thankful for your word. Thankful that you give us a passage like this Philippians passage. It's just so rich as we dig through it. Um, and just help us understand. When I read this, I just I feel like I, I, I get it and I understand it, but I want to, to, to feel what this passage is supposed to elicit. I want to feel what you want us to feel when we read this. And so I pray that your spirit would help us do that. Because again, it's, it's how we do anything good, anything holy, and anything that glorifies you comes by your spirit working in us. He's the power source. So I pray that your spirit would help me understand this passage to a greater degree, love Jesus to a greater degree, be changed by Jesus to a greater degree so that I can turn back and give you praise, honor, and worship that you deserve. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We're going to move into a communion time here. Jesus, before he would go to the cross to humble himself in this way, took bread and broke it and says, this is my body. This represents what I am about to go through on your behalf. And he takes a cup and he says, this cup represents my blood shed for you. Past, present, future sins. Covers your sins so you can come into a relationship with God. Here's what I want us to think about during this time. What we just read today separates what we do here separates following Jesus from every other religion, belief system, faith, philosophy of living. Everything else says, achieve, climb the ladder, get to God, do these seven steps, be this kind of person, follow this guru or leader. And the leaders of these things usually aren't humbling themselves to the point of death, death on a cross. Like what we celeb- about to celebrate here and observe and think about, it's radical. It's crazy. It's different. But it's so good. It's so good that he came to us. And he didn't expect us to come to him because that would fail quick. It's just such good news that Jesus humbled himself. But he's reigning now. And he'll return one day in judgment. Like this is what we need to think about when we take communion. Now, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, 
Um, I've already said it. This, this demands a response. And, and, and I get it. The response may be nothing. But just think about that response in light of what we've read today. I would, I would pray and plead with you to at least consider, is Jesus and who he says he is, what he did, is he believable? Like, could you maybe believe in him? And if that's the case, that's, that's a step in the right direction. And I'd love to talk to you, and I think you should process that. Why is that, that he's now maybe believable? Process that. But if you need more time, if I'm talking to you, then uh, this is for followers of Jesus only. Just sit where you're at and, and wrestle with it and think about it. I, I'd love to grab a meal or coffee with you or something and process it, because this is worth processing. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe today you're like, I, I believe this and I want Jesus. And I get that he died for sin. He took God's wrath. I'm tired of, 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 of looking to other things to save me. And I believe who he said he was and believe what the Bible says he, says he, he did. And if that's you and you want to, you feel like the Lord's given you some faith and you want to do that, you can take communion for your first time today. So if that describes you, please take communion. But tell somebody what God's doing and what he's done in these last, in this last hour or so. If you're a follower of Jesus in here, here's what I want us to do. There's going to be that the, um, the verse 6 through 11. It's going to be on the screens here in a second. And when you're kind of, you have this space and you're thinking, I want you just to read that silently to yourself. It's going to go through a few times. Read it. Think about it. Remember, this is supposed to be sung in the original. So I want us to think about it and dwell on it and imagine what it would be like to sing these words back to God. And then come forward in humility and take communion, recognizing our, your need for a Savior. But when you take these elements, when we tear you that bread off and hand it to you and you dip it in the cup, believe that it's good, it is finished. Like you'll be exalted one day, not by yourself, not by what you've done, but because of what Jesus said, you will be exalted one day. And that is good news. And you can walk out of here with your head high and excited about following Jesus in this life. Okay. And we've had, we have two worship songs at the end, and that's intentional today. So I want us to, to respond to this text, think about it, read it, take communion, and then sing the top of your lungs last two songs because he's worth it. He's ruling and reigning on his throne right now and he deserves our adoration and our affection and our worship. So I pray that you would do that. But take a few minutes, pay attention to the screens, and then come forward or to the back whenever you're ready.